Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 84 for the weekend of January 12th, 2018, the Playoffs Are Here edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at some of the top compliance stories over the past week. We ask the question, does free speech still exist at the office? Based upon an article by Ben D. Pietro in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Jonathan Marks asks if fraudsters are like the rich, i.e. different than the rest of us, and explores in his Board of Fraud blog. Rick Chapman writes about managing third parties in a mature compliance program from the SCCE blog. A professor from Japan, Joseph Pazgai, explores the question of a unified theory of corruption in the FCPA blog. Mike Volkov gives us five top compliance predictions for 2018. Uh, the Fed's raid 7-Eleven looking for criminals, i.e. undocumented workers. What does it mean for the compliance professional? Uh, an article in GIR explores the question, is there a real or perceived bias in the monitorship process? We discuss Sherman and Sterling's annual FCPA report, highlighting recent trends and patterns in the enforcement of the FCPA. I discuss my uh, 31 days to a more effective compliance program running in January. Also, my next master class, I'm pleased to announce, sponsored by Markham LLP, will be held on February 11 and 12 in Markham's offices in Florida. For more information, go to my website, FCPA Compliance Report. Jay previews the Jay Rosen Weekend Report, and we preview the upcoming NFL playoffs. I know you will enjoy this episode. We had a lot of fun putting it on. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. I am back again for episode 84 of This Week in FCPA with my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Jay Rosen. This is for the week ending January 12, 2018, Playoffs Are Here edition, at least for the Patriots. So, Jay, uh, how are things in uh, sunny California? How's the mudslides? Uh, well, we, we've gotten through the rain and the mudslides, so... Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, there were some tragedies and, uh, you know, we're, we're moving on and the sun is out and, uh, you know, it's, uh, early for us. We're doing our, we normally do our podcast on Friday and we're doing it on Thursday afternoon. So uh, I kind of feel like we're getting ahead of the curve. Well, you know, if you can have Thursday night football, I don't know why you can't have Thursday afternoon recorded podcasts. <laughs> So we've got to actually quite a bit, so let's just hop right into it. Um, from our good friend Ben DiPietro at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, he wrote a piece about the National Labor Relations Board uh, maybe changing uh, <coughs> protected uh, or categories of protected activity for employees, specifically uh, in regards to codes of conduct, and I found it Really interesting. Um, I have to admit, I am a um, very old labor lawyer kind of guy. Uh, I have a master's in labor relations and practice labor law in my early part of my career. So I was uh, very interested to see that the NLRB may uh, cut back from some of the protections that workers had in social media. And this, um, I found it really interesting, Jay, because uh, they're basically saying that employees cannot be disrespectful to supervisors, management, or their companies on social media. 
they cannot engage in disrespectful, negative, inappropriate, or rude conduct. Um, and that really is going to be a tricky situation. First of all, in social media, uh, it's uh, very difficult to control that, but it may open up companies to um, claims of harassment and bullying if they claim that a someone who raises their hand and says, I'm being harassed, and then claim that um, you know that's a negative or disrespectful comment. It, it's going to be interesting to see where the NLRB goes on this. Of course, under the current administration, they're clearly anti-employees, so it's not surprising they would go in this direction. But if, um, if they're going to try to uh, police social media and say that people can't raise their hand and make comments and companies can uh, fire people for making such comments, it's, it's going to be a... Um, uh, somewhat of a crossroads. Definitely uh, sounds like a slippery slope. Uh, next up, um, we had on, had him on last week as a guest, Jonathan Marks, and on his blog uh, site, Board and Fraud, he uh, channeled his inner F. Scott Fitzgerald to ask the question, are uh, fraudsters different than you and me, of course, riffing on the question that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, or, or line, he said, let me tell you about the very rich. They are different than you and me, to which Ernest Hemingway replied sometimes later, yes, they have money. Um, <laughs> but uh, he really used it to talk about, I thought, a, a really important point, which is, uh, and, and a very important point for compliance practitioners, because uh, fraudsters generally are different than you and I, Jay. They don't have the same internal moral compass uh, that we have. Uh, they routinely engage in deception and cover-up. They have troubling family and uh, friendship relationships. Uh, they are, are very congenial, uh, very outgoing, um, very clever, can be very creative. But they just do not respond to the normal types of um, ethical uh, training and ethical uh, challenges that companies would try to put out. And I once heard, I think it was Alexander Raghi from Trace say that 5% uh, of your workforce uh, training is not going to matter for because they're basically fraudsters. So it's a very interesting paper by, uh, it was a white paper by Jonathan that he posted on his blog. Uh, he originally wrote it for us. See if I can find the uh, citation. Uh, I don't have that, but he originally posted it as an audible, uh, excuse me, an article. And um, he basically says that you have to have deterrence, which we know, but then you have to take a step further that you have to really have an ongoing monitoring process. It's also something very important for the compliance practitioner. And then he advises to develop a response in, in case your deterrence fails. So for those companies out there with fraudulent characters, and unfortunately, uh, a some percentage of the uh, population is immoral, amoral, or just downright fraudsters, uh, that's something that you have to uh, consider in your best practices compliance program, Jay. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he uh, he really does a good job of listing some, um, you know, very relevant red flags if there's transactions conducted at unusual times of day or they're conducted more frequently than expected or they're large round numbers. So there are some definite telltale signs of what the fraudster does and then when he ends up uh, 
you know, tying up the article, he talks about, you know, the institution of effective controls and how, um, you know, you can try to help mitigate these things. But I think, you know, what you said about Alexandra is that there is that 5% and they're the folks that you're never going to be able to get through to. So um, next up, we had an article by uh, actually a former colleague of mine, Rick Chapman. Rick and I worked together uh, in the Halliburton Legal Department. He's now at Compliance at Halliburton. And he read a very interesting article, Jay, I thought, about managing third parties more effectively. And let me set the stage and then turn it over to you. Halliburton, uh, of course, has gone through a couple of FCPA enforcement actions. Uh, but in their uh, 2009 action, really put in a, a best practices compliance program after that, uh, managing, um, robustly managing third parties. So they had the basics in place. And Rick writes from a perspective of a, of a compliance practitioner who specifically handles third parties and uh, in a mature compliance program. And I thought some of his uh, insights were very good. So why don't you tell us about that, Jay? Yeah, it's a, it's a real economical piece that he wrote, and he talks about um, where most issues tend to come from um, third parties, that while companies may have automated solutions that are there to help with the due diligence process, whether they're online questionnaires or evaluations or approval systems, with what's happening now in this cyber insecure world, a lot of people or a lot of potential third parties may be reticent about, you know, answering these online questionnaires or they may not be responsive to automatic reminders. So Rick talks about that, although you might have all these technology and tools at your hand, you really still need to have a human touch in terms of maybe reaching out to that potential third party uh, letting them know that this request for information is legitimate and it's somebody who's not trying to spam them. And then also really not being so uh, cut and dry if you get potential red flags. Uh, sometimes a third party may have misunderstood a question and answered it in the wrong way. So, you know, the things that Rick speaks about, and we'll link to this in the show notes, is that you need to be flexible when you're making discretionary decisions. You need to adapt your workflow over time, and you need to collaborate for greater efficiency. And that point is that there may be other units within your company who are asking third-party vendors for the same information. So if there's a way to integrate and unite these workflows, it can make it a much more uh, efficient uh, you know, process and make it easier both for yourself for onboarding third parties and also make it easier for the third parties to work with you. So let me pick up on a couple of points that you raised, Jay, because I thought they were very insightful. Uh, the first one is on the personal touch. And, you know, when I take a look at you, when I take a look at your career in business development, it kind of led to the position um, um, that you're in now, I really see that personal touch. And you've had that with uh, customers. You've had that with clients. Um, and it's another example of what is what you might say is just a basic marketing tool or technique for the compliance practitioner, because the compliance practitioner's customers or clients, you know, they're going to be the business unit, but there also could be the third parties they have a contractual relationship with. 
So um, I thought that was a really uh, important point. Uh, he really uh, then he talked about the the flexibility needed, and he gave some really interesting examples where when information comes in that may not be correct, it may be off, it may not be fit into exactly a box, the compliance practitioner should have discretion to um, accept that information, but uh, have some sort of uh, monitoring, auditable trail, or some other mechanism uh, to manage that risk if it truly is a risk. If it's a mistake, the compliance professional should be able to um, uh, uh, overcome that or override that. And then the, uh, the collaboration part, uh, I thought was particularly important and insightful. You should have a collaboration with your business unit representative who uh, sponsors the third party and maintains that relationship. And your business unit representative should be having an ongoing dialogue with a third party about what's expected, what they need to provide. So when they get those automated workflow emails, uh, they won't be surprised and they won't think it's a scam. But uh, Rick also points out the collaboration leads to greater efficiency. So for instance, if you've had a long-term relationship with a third party, or at least have gone through one full cycle where they've gone through due diligence, uh, that's been evaluated. You've had, they've answered the questionnaire. Uh, you have a, a contract that you're comfortable with in place and they have exceed, uh, uh, complied under the terms of the contract and there's no um, issues that would come up. You may not need to send them through the full process again. He really advocates focusing on the work they're doing for you. Uh, if the due diligence needs to be updated, it can be updated. But if there are really no substantive changes, why make them go through the entire process again? So I thought those were really insightful points about having greater flexibility, uh, yet having that flexibility within the structure of an overall compliance program that uh, there is uh, oversight, there's auditability, and there's accountability. So a uh, really interesting piece by Rick. Uh, kudos for uh, putting it in the uh, SCCE blog. So next, Jay, we had a really interesting article uh, in the FCPA blog. And it was by a professor from a university in Japan. The professor, uh, his name doesn't sound Japanese. Um, and certainly his picture did not look Japanese. Um, but I don't want to cause any, you know, cultural uh, bars here. But it's a fellow named Joseph Pazge Alvarez, and he is a professor at um, the University of Chikuba in Japan. But he has worked with the Office of the Prime Minister of Peru on matters of ethics, transparency, and access to information. And Jay, he wrote a really long piece, which is a um, basically says there should be uh, he's searching for a unified theory on corruption. And I don't think we give enough weight, really, Jay, to the um, how academics and academicians play into the overall FCPA, overall compliance, the overall work that, that people like you and I do. Because they lay down a, a theoretical framework from which solutions can be built from. And um, what uh, Professor Paz guy, if I, I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering that name, 
really says is that there needs to be a more unified theory of compliance and that by uh, having a, a rule and then um, or a law and people try to comply with that, he thinks that's kind of backwards and that we need to look more at the cultural values and ethical norms and then see if the rules fit that. So um, I thought it was very interesting and uh, I really appreciated uh, his efforts. I'm not sure you can get a unifying theory of all of this and uh, maybe it doesn't make sense to others, but uh, I applaud the effort. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great read. So uh, <clears throat> if you're going to click through to the show notes, uh, it's definitely worth your time. Um, next, Tom, did you want to tell us uh, our good friend Mike Volkov has five major compliance predictions for 2018? What, what is Mike seeing in his crystal ball? Yeah, so Mike's taking a look at the year in review, and now he's looking at the year forward. And I thought this was real interesting, as really everything Mike blogs and podcasts about is. So his five significant predictions were ethical culture is a key and that forward-thinking companies are going to have to uh, are already using ethics and culture as a part of their uh, brand identification. I would say certainly we've seen the failures of that. Uh, and you name the company, Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, Uber, uh, and we've seen how they can hurt. But Mike really takes it and flips it around to say forward-thinking companies are using uh, uh, these techniques to, to make them more money and make them perform better than non-ethical companies. Number two. Corporate boards and watch out for corporate boards. And uh, obviously, sh shareholder activism is growing, but also given the corporate failures and the inevitable question of where was the board, uh, it may be that senior executives are going to be in the uh, crosshairs of the DOJ and SEC. Um, next is ethics and compliance resources. He, uh, Mike really has consistently talked about the need for uh, resources to be put forward into the compliance function. That is now enshrined in the uh, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance document uh, Programs document released in February 2017 and in the new DOJ's um, FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. So um, I think companies are going to have to uh, quit short-staffing, under-resourcing, and relying on outmoded technology um, and spreadsheets to do their compliance uh, or they're going to be in uh, trouble. Next is the testing and auditing of compliance programs. Jay, if you think about this in terms of the maturity of compliance programs, your first or second year, uh, your program, you're really implementing it. And it may not be an appropriate time to test and monitor. But as compliance programs become more mature, we're going to see more testing and auditing. And that bleeds over to third parties and distributors. The Department of Justice is now talking about this uh, on a fair, fair amount. And I think uh, companies are going to have to do this. But also, it really comes from having a mature uh, compliance program and a mature uh, compliance regime and a mature set of uh, third parties. We talked about Rick Chapman's article, and, and auditing really follows directly along the lines of uh, what Rick talked about as well. So really interesting article, article on Mike, always prescient and uh, uh, gives a, a lot of fodder for the compliance practitioner to think about. So um, now I have an article from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, immigration officials swarm 7-Elevens issue warning to U.S. businesses. So uh, in a coordinated effort at um, 98 7-Elevens on dawn at Wednesday, uh, 
ICE agents, uh, immigration agents, came in and interviewed uh, different employees at 7-Eleven, and they arrested uh, 21 people who are suspected of being in the country illegally. And now those people face deportation proceedings in federal immigration court. And this is uh, a continuation of Trump administration policy. And um, just in terms of 7-Eleven, the company uh, basically uh, has many, most of the uh, different stores are franchised. So 7-Eleven says that they take compliance with immigration laws seriously, and they have terminated franchise agreements of franchisees convicted of violating laws. Uh, 7-Eleven itself is owned by a Tokyo-based company called 7-I Holding Co., so uh, this is just, um, I said that the 7-Eleven stores were targeted as a follow-up to a 2013 investigation of several franchises of the convenience store chain that led to arrest of nine store owners and managers on a variety of charges. Uh, during the 2017 budget year that ended in September, the agency conducted 1,360 audits of employment paperwork and made 139 criminal arrests, which is basically about 10% of those people that were audited, along with 172 administrative arrests. So the agency said the businesses were ordered to pay more than $100 million in fines. So this uh, kind of, uh, once again, seems to be the administration really ratcheting up the uh, pressure on those people who are in this country illegally. So, Jay, let me see if I could take this story in a little bit different direction, because I see this as a compliance failure. I see this with huge FCPA uh, implications, and um, I have to say I absolutely love the statement by um, the parent company of 7-Eleven, which was that the convenience stores are independently owned and we have nothing to do with them. Uh, we tell them to obey the law, and they obey the law. We take their money, and that's it. So when you have that kind of attitude, uh, it's certainly problematic. But now, Jay, let's lay over and talk a little bit about that 2013 matter, because that was not ICE rolling in, checking paperwork. That was a series of 7-Eleven stores, over 40 stores, were engaging in human trafficking, and they had, uh, in addition to having uh, Ill illegal immigrants and uh, not just having illegal immigrants, but had given them identities stolen from American citizens, including uh, children and dead people. So we had uh, basically a slave labor going on in franchisee locations, um, where uh, they also had illegal immigrants. They had people working over 100 hours a week. And this is all in the context, Jay, of a franchise business relationship. So what's the responsibility of a franchisor in this case? Is it to do what 7-Eleven did uh, after the ICE raids and say, uh, oh, that's not us, and we told them to obey the law, and if they disobey the law, we'll fire them. Well, uh, but, you know, we'll take their money. And by the way, have you gotten your franchise fee to me this month? Uh, and if that's really the case, what's the responsibility of a franchisor? Uh, do they have to audit? Do they have to monitor? Do they have to have some sort of ongoing program, uh, much along the lines of what Rick Chapman talked about in third parties? What about uh, for 7-Eleven stores overseas? 
Do they have a robust FCPA compliance program in place? So we have a franchisor who absolutely had knowledge that franchisees were engaging in slave labor, were engaging in having illegal immigrants and undocumented workers working in their stores. Uh, we had evidence that um, franchisees were engaging in identity theft. So what is uh, the franchisor uh, doing about all that? Now, none of those questions were answered, and indeed they weren't even posed in the Wall Street Journal article, but I really think that there's something else uh, <clears throat> that uh, – 7-Eleven, and indeed all franchisors need to take away from this and uh, think about it in terms of a corporate liability or franchisor liability perspective. Uh, certainly interesting thoughts and, uh, you know, something that we'll hopefully uh, follow up on and get some clarity. Um, the next piece we have is from uh, anti-corruption uh, part of the uh, website. And the article is by Dylan Toker, and it's about biased in monitorship selections has become a self-perpetuating critics about how monitor selections should work differently. Former candidates have privately expressed gripes about a vetting process that in their eyes amounts to secure entry to an exclusive club. Um, their grievances concern an internal debate about who is best qualified to serve as a monitor. Is it a well-reputed criminal defense attorney or a career compliance professional with more experience, extensive experience designing the types of compliance programs that keep companies from becoming repeat offenders? And most practitioners in the Justice Department, too, will say that both sets can be useful and that one may be more important than the other, depending on the circumstances. But among some former monitor applicants, there's a perception that officials at the DOJ often skew towards picking defense lawyers, a large number of whom happen to be former prosecutors. Um, within the article, they give some different um, statistics and they look at um, situations uh, back in 2008. Then U.S. Attorney Chris Christie, a Republican, awarded a contract for overseeing a medical supply company to his former boss, John Ashcroft, a former Republic, Republican attorney general. The monitorship expected to cost as much as $52 million led to intense scrutiny by Congress and the creation of the DOJ of a set of principles designed to prevent future conflicts of interest. Uh, Tim Dickinson, a partner of Paul Hastings, who has served as a monitor three times and has advised many companies on monitorships, said that there are three criteria that he looks for when picking monitor candidates. One, compliance expertise. Two, credibility with Justice Department. And when possible, prior experience as a monitor. Uh, Dickinson's view said, in his view, Dickinson says that the most important criteria is compliance expertise. He likes to see a list of potential candidates that include, first and foremost, lawyers who have lots of experience on compliance, not solely with white-collar defense. So while they may be very good lawyers, many white-collar specialists don't have sufficient experience advising on compliance programs, said Dickinson. The skill set needed for an investigation and those who develop a good compliance program are certainly not the same. Uh, and then just a couple more quotes I wanted to uh, 
share with you. Uh, there uh, was, is a document that was written back in uh, 2009 called the Morford Memo after the then Attorney General. And um, basically it lays out what is, uh, you know, what are the minimums that you should have to have somebody be an efficient monitor. And it says, while attorneys, including but not limited to former government attorneys, may have certain skills that qualify them to function effectively as a monitor, other individuals such as accountants, technical or scientific experts, and compliance experts may have the skills that are more appropriate to the task contemplated in a given agreement, the memo says. But it's possible that changes are on the rise. And Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, said in a speech in October that his office is reviewing practices concerning corporate monitors. So uh, that's something that uh, usually comes up on my radar. Any thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah. Uh, first of all, who do you work for? Affiliated monitors. All right. So uh, there was one other point that I thought was interesting that I really had not fully appreciated. And it goes to the self-perpetuating nature of this. And it's a step beyond what you said, Jay, which is that companies think they need to have an ex-DOJ lawyer. And then let me lay one other uh, factor on, which is that companies are allowing their investigative FCPA counsel to guide them in the decision on the monitors, if not tell them who, who to take. And there you have uh, the white collar defense bar, largely ex-Department of Justice uh, lawyers uh, advising uh, to hire other white collar lawyers. And they're not really looking at qualified compliance uh, professionals and compliance experts. So it's, it's really, I even saw two more steps. And I thought really the thoughts of Wei Chen in that article brought that home, um, that uh, companies are kind of falling into this uh, conventional wisdom when it really is, is not conventional wisdom and doesn't need, need to be done. And having... Um, a white-collar defense lawyer, uh, I guess from my perspective, is it's certainly appropriate to have a prosecutorial mindset, uh, which is something that I don't have. I always practice on the civil side of things. But if your goal in a monitor is to help the company implement what's in the resolution documents, whether that be a deferred prosecution agreement, non-prosecution agreement, or other, or a declination, then uh you need to have a compliance professional. You need to have someone who knows how to design, create, implement, or enhance a compliance program inside of an organization and not simply prosecute or defend cases. So um, it, it's really becoming more and more um, really a self-fulfilling prophecy from all sides. From That's what my takeaway was. So uh, next up, we have uh, one of our treats that we get to read every year. Uh, Sherman and um, Sterling have released their annual report, Recent Trends and Patterns in the Enforcement of the FCPA. Uh, and Any takeaways that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, they had uh, quite a few takeaways, and I'll just hit some of the highlights. And if there are things that you want to particularly go into, we certainly can. 
Uh, there were 13 corporate enforcement actions, six of which were announced prior to the new administration, with total sanctions of approximately $1.95 billion. Uh, uh, not as big, obviously, as 2016, but the second largest dollar-wise of all time. The Tilia and Keppel enforcement actions um, uh, were certainly uh, very large, two of the top ten FCPA enforcement actions of all time. Nearly half of the uh, 2017 enforcement actions involved Latin America, while only one came from China, which is a very sharp drop. The Rolls-Royce case had both corporate and individual defendant enforcement actions, uh, which showed how the uh, Department of Justice could use the jurisdictional hooks it has at its disposal. We had a Supreme Court decision in the Kokesh case, which has the p potential to dramatically alter the way SEC brings FCPA enforcement actions. Um, <clears throat> two of the year's enforcement actions have arose out of breached DPAs, and that's the first time uh, we'd seen uh, that large a number in, in, in quite some time. We had uh, the announcement of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy in November and uh, kind of ending on the note, which is something that we have, I think, consistently said on this podcast. You've consistently said in your writings, uh, the Everything Compliance podcast gang have said, which is uh, one year into the Trump administration, it's clear that active enforcement of the FCPA will continue and uh, the prosecutorial staff of the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission will continue to exercise their own discretion. So um, perhaps some clarification, perhaps some cutback. Nevertheless, a, a pretty robust year of enforcement, uh, particularly when you consider uh, dollar-wise, it's number two. So um, as always, a great report. And uh, what, what were sort of your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think you, you pretty much hit them all on the nose, Tom. I, I think the other thing and, you know, the, the cautionary note about, you know, only time will tell whether the results in the U.S. pulling back its FCPA enforcement activity and deferring more to local regulators while also making sure not to pile on the penalties. So we've seen a lot of the, um, the global, uh, resolutions this year, Tilia, Odebrecht, and some of the others where, uh, there's not only been cooperation excuse me, from the investigative side, but there's also been situations where the fees and disgorgement money actually goes to the locale where the um, corruption occurred. So there is that potential chance that as more and more of this uh, cooperation happens around the globe, uh, potentially the U.S. could pull back in its enforcement and allow those global regulators to step in. But uh, right now, um, it seems like everyone's playing in the sandbox and sharing uh, and, and, you know, playing the game the right way. So, um, Jay, I am continuing my uh, January 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program series. Uh, today, we had day 11, which happily coincided with January 11th, so I can remember that. Um, the uh, It's been a rousing success. I've had a lot of fun doing it. And I have announced my next master class, which is going to be sponsored by Markham LLP. And it's going to be held on February 11 and 12 in Markham's offices in Miami. Uh, if you'd like more information on registration, it's on my website, the FCPA Compliance Report. If you're in South Florida or indeed anywhere else in the U.S., I hope you'll join us for a fabulous master class I'm going to put on with uh, Jonathan Marks. Uh, do we have a Jay Rosen weekend report? 
We do. I'm going to share my thoughts on the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy that was uh, recently um, you know, affirmed and put in place. So we'll take a look. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very um, focused document from Rod Rosenstein, and it really talks uh, it really, again, puts some bright lines in terms of what type of practice uh, will be rewarded, what type of um, assurance businesses can have moving forward if they uh, self-report. Uh, and then, uh, you know, one of the things that has been promulgated now is that if they do self-report, the expectation is that they will get a declination. So it's... Uh, the DOJ continuing to think of ways to incentivize people or rather uh, corporations to uh, self-report any significant uh, malfeasance. So, uh, boy, that's I, I hope it sounds as, as interesting as I made it sound. But we'll see what comes out when we uh, publish over the weekend. Uh, and finally, Jay, to the most important part of the podcast, we have the Patriots back in action after a week off. Tom Brady's letting his 40-year-old body heal up, and we have four playoff games this weekend. So I'm going to roll through these and uh, kind of get uh, get your predictions. So first up, uh, we have uh, the Patriots at home with the uh, Titans. And at this point, the Patriots are a, a 13 and a half point favorite. So uh, I assume you're feeling pretty confident about that one. Yeah, especially since we have another uh, New England conspiracy theory um, that hit the press about a week ago. So it's uh, allowed the Patriots to uh, have a common enemy to fight against now, which uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's uh, ESPN and, and they always make a good enemy. So uh, I think the 13 and a half points is pretty high. I, I say it's a it's a closer game and they're really going to have to work on containing uh Mariota, and if they're able to do that, they will win that game and go on to the conference final against the Steelers. Well, Jay, I thought you were uh, going to release some inside information there that uh, the Patriots actually planted that story. Uh, Belichick planted it so that he could get uh, somebody he could uh, uh, fight against and uh, turn against, and that it was a much, much, much deeper moly type of uh, conspiracy than even you chowderheads normally come up with. Uh, in the other AFC game, Jay, we have the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. They have quarterback with more running yards than passing yards in their first playoff game at Pittsburgh. They're seven-point uh, underdogs, but we should note for the record that Jacksonville actually beat Pittsburgh in the regular season in Heinz Field in Pittsburgh. So uh, with that uh, added bit of knowledge, does it make any difference in this game? Uh, I think you never really know which Steelers team is going to show up. Uh, so I think, um, you know, they're the defense Jacksonville is going to play them pretty tight. So it's going to be up to either the running game or the passing game. And I think what happened in that last loss, didn't big Ben throw something like four interceptions in the second half. So I think, uh, Roethlisberger is going to, uh, have a chip on his shoulder and want to, uh, prove that that was a fluke. So I think that's going to be what brings Pittsburgh over the hump. So you're thinking, go ahead and, uh, take Pittsburgh and give the points. 
Yep. Uh, next up, we have uh, Drew Brees with the New Orleans Saints at Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota's a five-point favorite. Uh, I found this a, this line, frankly, a little bit high. But uh, what were your thoughts on this? Um, you know, uh, I, I'm waiting for Case uh, Keenan to uh, uh, have his ability catch up with who he is and uh, – you know, for the most part of his career, he's been a journeyman quarterback. But, uh, you know, sometimes they rise up and have a great season. If you look at the Ravens several years ago and, um, oh, what's his name? Who's the quarterback who ended up winning the Super Bowl? He's now a, used to be an analyst on ESPN. So he kind of uh, came out of nowhere. So uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think Minnesota has the defense. And uh, I think it will be a very exciting game. And uh, at the end of the day, I say uh, let's go with the Boilermakers, uh, former quarterback Drew Brees. All right. So in the final game, we actually have a home underdog. We have the number one seed in the NFC, the Philadelphia Fighting Philadelphia Eagles, at uh, at home against Atlanta, and they're three-point underdogs. Now, uh, that, of course, is because largely because Carson Wentz was injured, and now Nick Foles is the quarterback. Uh, Atlanta uh, went into Los Angeles and just stumped the Rams, who had the best record, second-best record in the NFC. So that's got to count for something. Perhaps the Rams are peaking at the right time. We can certainly say they have Super Bowl experience, uh, and they may have a very large chip on their shoulder. Uh, what do your thoughts are on uh, that game, Jay? Um, I think the fact that uh, Philadelphia are dogs at home uh, really speaks to the lack of them not having a, a um, competent backup quarterback in Nick Foles. So I think uh, the hungry Falcons come in and they win. Wow. Okay, well uh, – Jonathan Marks actually is going the other way on this one, so uh, we'll have to see how that plays what, out. What, what's his reasoning besides just being a, a Eagles homer? Uh, do you need a reason more than that? Uh, probably not, but you know, I thought since he writes such great blogs and he was on the show last week, I thought he, he might have some kind of a theory as well. Uh, just uh, in, insight, insight. So uh, okay. with that, Jay, uh, you want to take us home? Sure. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us early on a Thursday edition of This Week in FCPA. Uh, the playoffs are here, parenthetical for the Patriots. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Enjoy the football. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA and compliance-related in the podcast world. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about this most unique podcast. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening this week. I hope you'll join us again next week where we explore the week's comings and goings in FCPA, compliance, and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.